0: Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast coming to you from Casa De Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Matt Haver.
1: And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K., and welcome to Episode 65. Today we're pleased to
0: welcome to the show writer, film researcher, and teacher Lara Gabrielle. Lara is the author of the new book from University of California Press, Captain of Her Soul: The Life of Marion Davies. Lara's research has taken her all over the world and she's spoken about Miss Davies at some of the world's most respected classic film festivals. Her article on Marion's transition to sound appears in the Summer 2018 edition of The Missouri Review.
1: Lara wrote the program for the screening of The Red Mill at Kennington Bioscope's Silent Film Festival in London and the liner notes for the recent restoration of When Knighthood Was in Flower. She also writes at Backlots, an award-winning classic film blog in operation since 2011. As a reporter, she annually covers such events as the San Francisco Silent Film Festival, the TCM Classic Film Festival, and Noir City. She recently appeared on the American Experience documentary Citizen Hearst, for which she was also a consultant and advisor. Lara joins us from her home in Oakland, California. Welcome to the show, Lara. Welcome.
2: Happy to be here, thank you.
1: So based on that bio,
0: you seem to be the go-to authority on all things Marian Davies. So what was it that first drew you to her as a subject? This is your first book, and and when did you decide that it was time for a new book on Marian's life and career?
2: I have always been interested in Marian Davies from, from the age of about 13, I would say. When I received, as part of a birthday gift, a copy of this book called The Times We Had, which has been marketed as Marion's memoir. We can get more into that. But I got this book at 13, and I read it. And I thought, this is a woman who's had an incredibly interesting life. Even at that young age, I knew that. And she was always at the back of my mind from that point on. I started the blog in 2011. I realized how much I loved the research and the writing process. And I was publishing these posts with all this research and people started saying to me, have you ever thought about doing something bigger? And I said, well, sure, that would be great. But who could I write about who hasn't had a lot written about them? And back to Marion Davies. She was the first name that came to mind. I tried to think about other people and I couldn't shake Marion Davies as a subject. She, I kept coming back to her thinking about how great it would be. So I decided not to fight it, took it as a sign, went down to LA where I found her papers are and started going through things. And it started coming together really quickly. The puzzle started, started to fit. I started taking down names. I found her great niece. I found people who were still alive, who knew her well. And it just has been, it's been nine years and it's been a joy with her as a subject, I really hit the jackpot with, with Marion as, as a subject.
0: And as we were discussing off air, uh, I was just at the Eagle Harbor bookstore over in Seattle and found the hard copy. So it's, it's only been out, what, a couple of weeks?
2: It hasn't, it's not out yet.
0: Oh, it's not officially released. It's not okay. officially
2: out. It's, it's September 27th when it's supposed to be out. But well, They must
0: have jumped the gun because I found a copy on the shelf and it's, it's, it's a beautiful hardcover.
2: Thank you. Yes, I'm very happy with the cover. It's it's just wonderful. But I think that they they realized that it was, you know, that they had to get the copies out because what I've just been told is that it's just run out of its initial it's sold out of its initial print run already. Oh, that's good really
0: news. Congratulations. So
1: it, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's awesome. Thank
2: you. It, yeah, it's um, it's it's pretty mind blowing, actually.
1: Well, one of the reasons that, that may be is because I think people are are thirsty for knowledge about marion davies i mean your book is the first full-length biography on her in over 50 years and most of what the public knows about her is kind of seen through the lens of a relationship with william randolph hearst um, or in the context of citizen kane brought up again a few years ago with mank it's always part of that that conversation Um, And she was born in 1897 and was making Mm -hmm. films in her teens, 20s and 30s. So you're dealing with material from 100 years ago. So I guess, first of all, if you can explain what you think is some of that that thirst for knowledge about Marion, what makes her so special, and then a little more about maybe your research process.
2: Sure. I think that with Marion Davies, I think people have a sense that she might not be the person that she's made out to be, uh, you know, where there's this there's this Citizen Kane thing that just keeps popping up. And, you know, the one thing I I hear is, well, a couple of things, I hear that, oh, she's that person from Citizen Kane or Citizen Kane did her so wrong. Right. So there's, you know, there, there's this sort of shadow of Citizen Kane that has been hovering over Marion Davies for decades. And I think the people who think that she's the character in Citizen Kane are interested maybe in, you know, that movie and you know who she was. And then the people who think that she was wronged clearly know a little something and are interested in more. So she really is a fascinating subject. Um you know, having lived with Hearst, you know, and entertained all these people, show business people and politicians and just artists. And just, she had, she just had such a fascinating life. And in terms of the art, well, my research, my research encompasses a lot of archives, because as you mentioned, this is a hundred plus years ago in some, in some parts of her life. And there aren't a whole lot of people still alive. There are a few people, but the archives were were really where I got a lot of my information. And there are a lot of archives now. When Fred Lawrence Giles was writing his book in 1972, there weren't a lot of archives. And so he relied mostly on interviews. And that's something that I couldn't do, but I have his tapes. I have his interview tapes. So I was able to hear the interviews that he conducted with these people that crafted his book, so I got those, plus the archives, and the the archives are are really extraordinary. Uh, you know, letters between Marion and her sisters, between Marion and business partners, the Hearst Corporation, uh, and you know, I went to the New York Public Library and found uh, her scrapbooks. Or oh, there's all this information about the plays that she was in. I found that there were some discrepancies between reality and what Marion said. Which is, I mean, Marion, when Marion recorded her autobiographical tapes, which I also have, she was in a really difficult time in her life, and she was veiling a lot of things and not not recalling things accurately in some cases. So, I found that some things that she said were misremembered were let out wrong (laughs) and and so those things i'm able to correct in the book
0: she she had a lot to remember like you described (laughs) a lot of people a lot of times a lot of places oh a lot of life
2: her life was so full and yeah from the from the beginning you mentioned
1: that oh go ahead greg oh i was just gonna ask so given the the things that the people generally think about mary and the things that you've learned what do you think is the biggest misconception that people have about her
2: that she was after Hearst for his money, Marion. Uh, when she started at MGM, uh, you know, when she signed her signed her contract at, at, with MGM, when Cosmopolitan joined with the studio, she signed for ten thousand dollars a week. I mean, she was she she did not need his money. She was with him because she wanted to be with him, and you know there are many so many times when she could have left and she never did and uh you know one thing that marion said on her on her tapes is i had plenty of opportunities to get married but how can you marry when you're in love with somebody else
1: hmm.
2: so yeah i think that really is the biggest misconception uh another one is that she was Hurst's pawn sort of uh that she that hearst created this image for her that she really didn't want. And the title of my book is Captain of Her Soul, right? Which which I think speaks to her, you know, her ability to, to craft her own narrative and to say no when she really wanted to say no and continue when it was okay with her. And yeah, Hearst was really controlling and he created this image but she could have said no at any time. And she she did. When she, when it became too much for her, she stood up for herself and started changing her image on her own in the mid-20s.
0: Yeah, I've been enjoying your book. And, and the the woman that you describe is definitely not someone to be manipulated. Right. Uh, definitely someone uh, that thinks for themselves and quite spirited. Someone who's going to say no and push back uh, if something is not going the way that she thinks it should go. You mentioned, obviously, the Citizen Kane misnomer about her so frequently and inaccurately connected to the Susan Alexander Kane character. And so, obviously, the elephant in the room uh, becomes Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. And uh, reading about him and his involvement, obviously, in crafting that, you know, some say that the greatest film ever made. A few years before he died, he actually said... Uh, I I can't do my Orson Welles impersonation, sorry, but uh, it seemed to me to be something of a dirty trick and still strikes me as something of a dirty trick, what we did to her. And that was actually um, he said that. And then he also, I guess, wrote the forward to the posthumously published, the 75 memoir that you described, The Times We Had, correct? Yeah. Yes, he did. So kind of setting the record straight. So when that when that film was released, did that Susan Alexander Kane character really have an impact on her? Privately, professionally, what was the fallout from that? Or is that something that the media and Hollywood has really kind of ginned up?
2: She touched on it in her autobiographical tapes. She was asked about it and she said, Who am I to tell Orson Welles how to make his movie? Hmm. So she was able to let it kind of roll off her back. Whether that was something that she was putting forth and something, you know, versus something that she actually thought. It's really difficult because she did wear masks a lot, uh, you know, and put forth a, you know, something, something that, that might be veiling what she truly felt, but she said that she, that it didn't bother her. She also said she didn't see the movie. I know she did see the movie. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, like so- she
0: handled it like a professional.
2: Yes and uh, she said you know if it's a good if it's a good movie i'd like to see it if it's not a good movie then i then i won't see it but you know essentially saying that it didn't bother her which which i think is a pretty a, a pretty healthy way to handle things but again i i don't know to what degree it affected her in a way that she didn't express mm-hmm. um yeah interestingly uh, i don't know if you if you've gotten to this part in the book yet but there's another person who is much more like uh, the Susan Alexander character than Marion is.
0: Yes, opera singer, correct?
2: Yes, Gona Walska is her name. Right. And, interestingly enough, Marion knew her. Hmm. They were, uh, I mean, not very well, but she knew her. They They were together in Europe at the same time, and they had lunch together at least once.
0: The real, I don't know, the most glaring difference to me between the way that she was portrayed in the film and the true Marion Davies was the fact that, like you said earlier that you alluded to is that Hearst didn't create her career for her as was kind of shown with the character of Susan Alexander Kane. It wasn't this talentless person who the great newspaper magnate created out of thin air and, you know, foisted upon the public, whether they liked it or not. She was quite talented. uh, Some would say extremely talented and definitely a trailblazer in a lot of ways. And like you said, in those days, $10,000 a week, hey, that's, that's not bad.
2: That's not bad today.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know, I mean,
2: you, could do, you could do that math. What is $10,000 a week You know, in 1925 money? Right. It, it's really a pretty extraordinary amount. Yeah, and that was her. That was Marion who, who did that. She was a very good businesswoman as well, you know, negotiating her own contracts. and.
1: Well, she was a pioneer in a number of ways. I mean, she she was one of the ones... Uh, only ones who successfully transitioned from silent to talkies, even with a stutter. And we've talked about that this on the show before, the difficulty in that transition. I mean, it was, it was chronicled in the movie The Artist a few years ago uh, of how difficult it is for people, I believe. Uh... Mary
0: Pickford and other.
1: Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it
2: was a difficult transition for a lot of people.
1: But she was able to handle it smoothly, more or less. and
2: More or less, yeah.
1: Yeah. But she also pioneered like the screwball comedy and, and some of these other things. So who were, uh, who do you think uh, were some of the stars that were influenced by her or her heir parents?
2: I think that the clearest ones are the sort of descendants of Carol Lombard, right? So Carol Lombard, Carol Lombard and Marion were friends. Carol Lombard, I think, took very clearly from Marion's style of comedy. I mean, you see how she is in the movie 20th Century. It's like the Patsy. I mean, she's she, she she really took a lot of cues from from Marion. and then from Carol Lombard came Lucille Ball,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and then from Lucille Ball came Carol Burnett, right? So I think uh, I think that there's this there's this comedic family that descends really from this type of comedy that Marion was doing in in the late twenties. I, I think it was Anita Luce who said. It's, it's in the book, but I think it's Anita Lewis, who said that Marion was more like Mabel Normand than anyone, which I think is an interesting comparison, Marion and Mabel Normand. I think that Marion was really, was really pioneering this new type of comedy, but possibly using the comedy of Mabel Normand as sort of a jumping off point. It's interesting to think about anyway.
0: Could you throw Catherine Hepburn in there and that miss that list as well?
2: Catherine Hepburn. Oh, like, and bring up baby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another woman who could stand in there yeah. and really you know, scrap it out with the big boys.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, in that sense, I mean, yes, Marion could do that. Carol, Carol Lombard could definitely also yeah. do that. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and Catherine Hepburn could, although Catherine Hepburn, I think, you know, we could talk about Catherine Hepburn, but it's a, I think it's a little bit of a different dynamic. Actually you've, I think you've probably gotten to this point in the book too, where I talk about Marion and her cross-dressing in the movies. Yes. Yeah. So she did a lot of movies where she played played a boy or dressed up in masculine clothes. and
0: uh, Even caused some issues with her on certain sets, I understand. What was that? I said it even caused her issues the way she was dressed uh, on certain sets.
2: On Runaway Romany, right.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. So that that's a fun story. Public
0: decency. She's wearing slacks, my God.
2: Yeah, right. <laughs> right. But but there's a comparison there between the way Marion cross-dressed and the way Catherine Hepburn cross-dressed in movies like Christopher Strong, right? Um, where where Catherine Hepburn really embodies the the masculine the masculinity of her roles, whereas Marion seems to be uh, you know, when she when she cross dresses, she seems to be still very feminine and kind of retaining this this sense of being herself, wearing her character as lightly as a cap kind of situation. Um,
0: I think it had to be those eyes, those eyes that W.R. fell in love with on the big screen.
2: Oh yeah, well, I mean, those are some eyes, but <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if you've gotten to this part yet too, but um, they, there was a, a person who I uh, interview who I, who I did a lot of, uh, interviews with became, he became a really wonderful contact named Stanley Flank, who, um, said that Marion's eyes were like dinner plates. They were so big that they were, you know, like, like twice the size of normal human eyes, which probably also contributed to her success on the silent screen because the eyes are so important.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a lovely photo that you chose for her, for the cover of the book.
2: Thank you. I love that photo. I'm so glad that it made that it made the cover.
1: <laughs> well, you mentioned the Patsy earlier, and that's the first movie I saw Marion Davies in and just blew me away, uh, in a number of ways. First of all, you met, and you mentioned the cross dressing. I mean in that film she dresses like what, three or four other silent film actors, Lillian Gish and a few others and
2: Lillian Gish, Meg Murray, Paul yeah. Yeah.
1: And and there you can see those eyes again. It it's uh it's perfect uh for that. But one thing I noticed in that was just how natural she seemed when she was uh, either laughing or reacting, almost like she wasn't acting. It, it just it seemed so natural. And for a silent film where you have to almost overact in a lot of ways because there's not the voice and, and things like that to go along with it. What was it about her, um, either her, you know, uh, style or something about her that made her such a natural on screen?
2: That's a really great question, and I think we have to sort of talk about two different eras. We have to talk about the silent era and the sound era because it's they're they're different. In the silent era, I think that Marion was really comfortable, and I think that she uh, really was being herself a lot of the time. Uh, there, especially like in in show people in the Patsy, King Vidor said, "What they did in show people in the Patsy was what Marion did all the time anyway." You know, like when she was at parties and, you know, was doing all her impressions and, and, you know, running around and being vivacious, they put all that in there. And so this was, this was Marion really being Marion in, in the, in the late twenties. In the earlier twenties, I think that you could say that she was a little bit less comfortable because she was in these, you know, um, big costumes and imposing sets and, and that kind of thing, but she's not a, she, she is still a natural dramatic actress. And I think that it goes back also to the fact that she wore her characters, uh, that she wore her characters lightly and it helped with the distinctive way she did her cross-dressing. It helped with making her look natural on screen. Um, now we're talking about the silent era now. In the sound era, she was much less comfortable for reasons that you've touched upon, right? She, The stutter really plagued her psychologically. And she never stuttered on screen. Uh, she worked really hard on her lines and had them down really well. And also reciting memorized lines has some sort of it impedes stuttering. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. some sort of neurological component to that, but she was never comfortable. She was stilted in this in her sound movies. Really, I mean, you you watched her, you watch her sound films, and there's something missing. She was not able to be that natural, free person that she was in silence.
1: Yeah, in the silent films, she just she seemed bigger than life. Um, Like she just yeah. kind of carried the whole film on her own. Yeah.
2: And she had such a persona. I mean, she had such a, uh, you know, she was so natural.
0: Mm-hmm. A presence.
2: Yes. But she lost that in, in the sound films, I think.
0: Do you think some of that had to do with her background as a dancer? I mean that, that just that comfort and that physicality that she, she brought with her into the films.
2: I definitely think so. And if you see, you know, anytime where she dances, even in lights of old Broadway, just really briefly, she's just having so much fun and she said that that was the one thing she really wished she could do more of in movies was dance. And she was very graceful. I don't know if you've seen The Fair Co-ed, but even playing basketball, she's like this amazing basketball player. She's very, <laughs> yeah, very physical.
0: I wanna take a little bit different tack now. Uh, the one subject that, again, like we chat, we, where we mentioned in kind of the intro or you know, our first few questions is that, that not plagued her, but just kind of veiled her. Uh, all these years was the relationship with with hers but yeah. you can't really have a conversation about her or her life or accomplishments or career without discussing that you know and 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 right. without going too deeply into that and taking away from her as her as a talent on screen um and and in I mean all kinds of charity work and and tons of other things she did uh solely what was the attraction uh I know that that she had some trauma as a, as a youth, there was uh, an absent father, uh, there was alcohol issues. What was it that drew her to hers and vice versa? It, in some ways, again, without the, there's that gold digger <laughs> term that was thrown around and is still thrown around. And that's on the surface, perhaps the appearance, young starlet, aging, you know, billionaire. Mm-hmm. It you, you claim that it was genuine. And after reading your book, I, I totally agree. What was it, what was between them?
2: I think you can, Think about it as an organic love um, that evolved between them. And, you know, if you read the sort of the beginning of their relationship, it started out kind of slowly. Right. He came to call, you know, at her home and brought her books and they bonded over books.
0: Yeah, very old fashioned. and yeah.
2: Yes. And her parents were accepting of this situation. And they sort of slowly became partners and she got used to him and he got used to her and they had this really unusual relationship because at once it was a mentor mentor mentee relationship romantic and paternal right I mean Mm -hmm. he was so much older than her
0: it was a 34 years
2: 34 years yeah Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was born in uh April 1960, oh, sorry, April 1863 and she was born in January 1897. So, almost 34 years.
0: Well, the other cool thing about your book is it it really and like you said, I I really enjoyed that part about them kind of their courtship. Um Yeah. And it really humanized him because, you know, the citizen Kane Cloud didn't just fall over her. Right. And he certainly had <laughs> he's he certainly had his enemies. And like you said, he could be a difficult guy and, and, and a controlling guy and a manipulative person in yeah. his business dealings, but it really kind of showed his human side, uh, almost, almost hesitant and shy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in his relationship with her and approaching her, uh, things like that. It, it, yeah. I, I found that very interesting.
2: Right. He's a very, very complicated character. Somebody who has had so many books written about him over so many decades and nobody can really get much of a handle on him.
0: It's those eyes. He had, he had some eyes too, didn't he?
2: <laughs> he did. Yes. <laughs> There's that beautiful quote, the quote about the Comstock load, you know, the, uh, Anaconda anyway. Yeah. It's, 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 it's in the book, I think. Um,
0: as, as dead and lifeless as hers were lively.
2: Yeah. Uh, but, but ex- expressing nothing, I think is part of the, right, kind of the right. quote. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's really amazingly complex. And interestingly, I think that Marion was the person who knew him the best, who got him. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think you've gotten to this part yet because you said you're about halfway through. But when he was close to death, Marion really did a, a wonderful thing for him for his last, for his final birthday. And he, she knew that it was gonna make him cry. And she knew that he wouldn't wanna cry in front of men. So she only invited women to this birthday party, to this final birthday party where she was gonna give him this gift. And so it's, it's like nuances like that, it's really like tiny little things that she knew about him.
0: And stories like that just humanize them both
2: yeah I got a really lovely note from his grandson you know saying that that's that that's what the book did you know the book humanized him and and I'm I'm really happy about that I'm really happy that that that's what the book has done because these are human beings these are all human beings and nobody should be seen as completely one way or completely another way people exist in gray areas and that includes Hearst and you know, the complexities of Hearst are like we said, just, just gargantuan.
0: There you go. There's your next book project. Yeah. <laughs> Time well, for a Laura Gabrielle treatment
1: on, on Hearst, right? I
2: don't know. I don't know about that. He gives me a headache. <laughs> yeah. So,
1: so what happened with, um, when cause obviously Hearst was married when all of this was, was going on. What was the, was there any sort of, civil relationship between Hurst's wife and Marion Davies?
2: Distant. not. N- neither of them were confrontational, ever. There was a, a quiet understanding that when Millicent would come to San Simeon, Marion would leave and would go to LA. And then Millicent would leave and Marion would come back. And they knew, everybody knew that this was the situation. And nobody really said anything Millicent I think is I think it would be really here be, you know, we're talking about everybody's a human being it would be really easy to characterize Millicent as a a villain in this you know as as much as sometimes Marion is cast in in that way and some questions I've gotten you know people like oh she's a homewrecker mm. and all of these things uh which you can read the book but you know <laughs> He's, he's very easy to blame the woman. But with Millicent, I don't think that she's a villain either. I think that she uh people who have known them both have known Marion and Millicent said that they're they're a lot alike. And that Millicent kind of understood and had this sense of inevitability about this. And uh she was by all accounts a lovely woman.
1: That's
0: fascinating. Yeah. Well, Marion could certainly serve as a role model in many ways uh, for women and men, for all of us. Uh, I mean, resilience, her overcoming disability, the stutter, um, Mm -hmm. the way she took command of her career in an industry dominated by powerful men, uh, you know, in that in those days and and still to a great degree. What are some takeaways that you personally found inspiring and and maybe something that you think today's artists, specifically women in the industry, could learn from Marion?
2: Yeah, she was somebody who, the the main thing, I think, is she was not intimidated by anyone. She was the same way with Winston Churchill as she was with her friends from the chorus. Uh, she was completely 100% herself. She was also a, a very strong person, didn't take herself too seriously. You know, uh, She she kind of... Laughed at people who took themselves too seriously. Didn't sweat the small stuff. Let a lot fall off her back, and really had this steely iron backbone. I mean, she she was a very very strong person, uh, emotionally and psychologically. I mean, she of course had all these anxieties and and things like that, but she never became she never became bitter, with all the difficulties that life threw at her. So I, I think that, that those are those are some things that people can learn from her. Her strength of character and her uh ability to, to be herself.
1: Yeah, not just not just advice for you know actresses and actors, but for everybody. Um that's that's just that's yeah. just good advice. Now where where do you see where do you find your uh or where does anybody find Marion Davies films? Every once in a while I know TCM will show one or two uh, that's where I saw the patsy. Yeah. Um obviously between the silent films and 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 the sound films, where can someone go to find some of these?
2: Well, some of them are on DVD. Uh, the Patsy and Show People are very accessible. There's some that are for free online. Little Old New York can be seen for free online. The Fair Co-ed, a very bad copy of The Fair Co-ed can be seen online. I don't think that unfortunately and this makes me just so sad that the Cardboard Lover, I don't think can be seen anywhere unless there's some bad copy floating around. But the Cardboard Lover, I think is one of her greatest movies. It's in that wonderful 1928 year, you know, Cardboard Lover, the Patsy and Show People. And I have a copy, it's a it's a relatively bad copy, but I think you have to actually go to the Library of Congress to see the Cardboard Lover, which is really upsetting. <laughs> Um, somebody needs to do something about for the that.
0: true connoisseur, right?
2: <laughs> yes. Um. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, there are a lot of movies that are lost. Her very first movie is lost: uh, "Runaway Romany," "Cecilia with Pink Roses." The next one is lost: "The Young Diana." All of these these movies that I just like, I really want to see these movies, but they're probably in someone's attic somewhere, or you know, in someone's barn. Uh but but keeping eye out at
0: those estate sales, folks.
2: Right. We
1: it's... need to get Tra- we need to get Tracy Gossel on that. When she's finished with her Douglas Fairbanks movies, Matt, we'll you'll we'll get uh Yeah, the Biograph yeah. Project. Yeah, there you go. Yeah.
2: yeah. Um Yeah, I think that they found a copy of uh definitely of Grouse darker it was one one of Marion's movies, which you know it was just a copy. There are it was not a lost film. It would have been great if it were, but uh one of her movies somebody found in like a paint can in their shed
1: that's crazy crazy.
2: a number of years ago um so things these things show up you know
0: well now we know where to find Marion davies films where do we keep up and find out more about you and your projects and the book and all that fun stuff
2: i have the, the book has a website um it's it's pretty static right now um but the uc press website is the place to go i i'm gonna I really have to like add more to the book's website, like put events on there and things like that. But uh, the UC Press website is where you can find more about the book.
0: Will you be doing uh, signing events
2: coming up? Yes, I'll be doing many signing events in LA. I'm doing one uh, at Larry Edmonds, one in the Bay Area at Mrs. Dalloway's bookstore in Berkeley. I'll be at Film Forum uh, in New York uh, in mid-October. We're going to be doing something at the Wilder Theater in L.A. I've got lots of stuff, lots of stuff going on. Excellent. So, yeah.
0: Well, thank you again. This has been wonderful. Uh, the book is great. It's an thank easy you. read, but obviously thoroughly researched. And like we mentioned earlier, really just puts a human face on two larger than life characters and and then all the peripheral folks that were in and out of their lives, like you said, uh, that she that she interacted with and um, putting a human face on. William Randolph Hearst, no easy task, <laughs> Lara. So <Thank> <laughs> well, well, well done. Thank you. <laughs> and and best of luck on the book tour and uh, hopefully the next batch sells out too.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much. This this is really lovely.
0: Oh, thank you. Our pleasure. Well, thank you again to our guest, writer, film researcher and teacher, Lara Gabrielle. You can find out more about her book, brand new book, Captain of Her Soul, The Life of Marion Davies at mariondaviesbook.com and on Facebook at, at MarianDaviesBook. And that'll be all linked in the show notes, of course. And it'll be available soon in hardback, everywhere fine books are sold, so keep an eye out.
1: And if you enjoyed episode 65, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or five. You can find all the latest on Heilmanandhaver.com, along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.